If you would take your scriptures, turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter 3, we'll be reading the entire chapter. 2 Peter 3, would you give ear to the reading of God's word? Beloved, I now write you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the, of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, the scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth is standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, And a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great sound, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, Be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. As also in all his epistles, speaking to them of these things, in which are some hard things to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. Let us give thanks to the Lord for the reading of his word. Let us pray. Grant us this morning, gracious and merciful God, grace to know and understand this process of salvation you have laid before us through your Son, Jesus Christ. You told us that until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will disappear from the law until everything is filled. Help us, Father, that we might grow so we can come closer to the completion of all things. We know only the study of your word, And the spread of that word will bring this to pass. Help us, Lord. Help us to study, for our desire is to be with you. We thank you. 
In Christ's name, amen. What do we mean when we speak of the day of the Lord? It's really very simple. The day of the Lord refers to the return of Jesus Christ in bodily form. It is the day already chosen by the Father for Christ to return and gather his people to himself. Luke speaks of this day in Luke 17, 24. And I'm reading from the ESV. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. This shows that this day will be seen by all, both saved and unsaved, and it will have an effect on all. For the believer, this will be the most glorious day ever. It will be the day in which all he hoped for and believed in will come to fulfillment. Again, Luke 21, verses 27 and 28. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. This is what we as believers eagerly await. The consummation of all that God has promised in Jesus Christ. It will be a day of great joy. There will be much singing and praising. But for those who do not know Jesus Christ, for all who refuse the gospel message and harden their hearts against this wonderful offer of peace and grace, for these, this day, will hold only horrors too great to imagine. Paul says of that day in regard to the unsaved, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 and 3. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. What a terrible thought. That in the least expected time, when their hearts are their hardest and their thoughts furthest from the truth, that eastern sky will split open. And they will, the one they, they have rejected and despised will appear. And there will be no place for them to run and hide. Jesus came the first time not to condemn. He came to offer salvation to all who would hear and believe. But this second coming will be different. He will come to separate those who are his from those who are not. He will come with his reward for all who have believed and persevered. He will also bring his rod and the judgment it represents against all who have not believed. Please, please hear this and understand. Jesus Christ is offering and continues to offer until he returns salvation to each and everyone who will hear his message of love and grace and will make it their God. Peter declares in this passage that God is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The reason God delays the return of Jesus is so men can be saved. The problem is not God's power to save, but the hardness of men's hearts. Please remember, Salvation is a gift from God, and it is freely offered to all men. No man will accept unless God's grace works in his heart. But remember, even without God's grace, all men are under obligation to hear and believe. 
God gives to them time to do that. But, but the day is coming when the offer ends and men will, will be rewarded according to the acceptance or rejection of Jesus Christ. That day is the one Peter calls the day of the Lord. Our text this morning is verses 8 through 13, where we shall examine the day of the Lord. You may note that the outline is the same as the one from the first sermon on 2 Peter 3. In the sermon today, the words represent slightly different propositions. This week, we shall first consider the reminder Peter gives of what time is. He's going to show us what time really is. Second, we will look into the warning he issues about the final elements of this day. Third, we will talk about the results surrounding the end. The day of the Lord is coming. Absolutely nothing in this world can hold it back. Just as the day of the flood when it came. But just as God gave warning to the people of Noah's day, a 120-year period of grace as Noah preached, so the day of the Lord will come with grace. There is one thing you can be sure of. The day of the Lord is coming. It's coming because God has decreed it, and it will come in his time. It does not matter that there are those who do not believe. That day will come in its properly appointed moment. It is God alone who created the concept of cosmic time. He started it to ticking at the beginning of creation. It was also it, it will also be God and God alone who declares its end and will then fold the idea of chronological time into eternity. It's very important that you understand our idea of time is not God's idea of time. God's perspective of time is totally different from ours. It is in the next two verses that Peter explains this difference. Verses 8 and 9. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord's not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. But is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Please note, Peter again uses the term beloved. This is a very, very important concept. He wants them to pay attention and to remember. He gives them the truth on, on this because he loves them. He wants them to have a right understanding of God's plan. That's what he wants for all of us. We need to pay attention to that. Remember, he says, it is important to teach the truth to those you love, just as it is important to exercise discipline with those you love. He pleads with them as his dear friends, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. He has told them of the false teachers and scoffers and of their coming destruction. Now, he wants his beloved ones to know this very important truth about what will happen to them as believers on the day of the Lord. I'm sure at this point, many are raising questions and probably the most asked question is, when is that day coming? Peter doesn't address the time of that day. What he does is address time itself. 
he tells them that what they need to see is that God looks at time differently than we do. Peter says, "What the Lord is with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day." Many, many have tried to take this and develop a millennial teaching about Christ's return. They say, if a day is like a thousand years to God, then He created the earth in six days, therefore it will continue for 6,000 years or longer, and then a 1,000 years or longer of rest will follow before the end. And if you look at any of the millennial views, you're going to find that there's uh, some way that fits in to those views. They ignore the last part of the verse that says a 1,000 years is like a day. This added statement shows Peter's only making a comparison. That to God, time is not what rules. This is a loose quote from Psalm 90, verse 4, which shows the same concept that life is so much more than man's time on earth. Our time is but a mist. Here for one moment and gone the next. Time is a part of creation itself and God is the one controlling it. He can accomplish as much in a day as what man can in a thousand years, or he can wait a thousand years for what man thinks he must have in a day. This statement tells us time is no more than a tool to God. Peter needed to explain this before his next statement could be understood. Verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Friends, God's not dragging his feet here. He has a plan. And that plan is being fully carried out right now. It's not subject to the time of men, but is subject only to God's sovereign will. There is no slackness here at all. You must not try and apply your understanding of time to this statement. This statement is only to show the sovereign nature of God. God is working all things out according to his will. Consider now that God so loved the world. He loved it so much. Peter says he has no desire for anyone to perish. He so loved it that he prepared a way in which men could be saved. He has never declared that all men would be saved. He has only declared his love of man as a work of his hands. Let me give you two examples of this love. First, from the Old Testament. Remember Cain and Abel? Cain killed Abel. God asked Cain why he, was, uh, why he brought an unacceptable offering. And he said, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Cain, instead of listening, instead of being obedient, got mad. And he went out and killed his brother Abel because of Abel's righteousness. God confronted Cain about this murder, but Cain would not repent. He showed himself to be a hard-hearted man and selfish to the core. Cain was only concerned that some avenger might come along and kill him. He only asked God to protect him from the avenger. God gave to Cain, even in his sin, that protection. God also offered Cain his grace and mercy. 
The Apostle John in 1 John 3.12 says, Cain belonged to the evil one. That is proved by his rejection of God's grace and mercy and his willful departure from God. Genesis says, So Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. Cain refused to hear the message of hope and love. He followed his own path. The second example comes from the New Testament. Jesus spent a whole night in prayer before choosing his disciples. One of those disciples was Judas Iscariot. Jesus spent much time teaching these men, and then he sent them out to preach, teach, heal, raise, cleanse, and drive out demons. And yes, Judas was also commissioned to do these things. He received the same love the others received. At the Last Supper, Jesus told Judas he knew he was the one who was going to betray him. Judas had an opportunity right then to reject his sinful path, but he did not. He went and betrayed Christ to the high priest. Yes, we see later that Judas was filled with remorse, but he didn't repent and, and return to Jesus. Instead, he went out and hung himself. He committed suicide. Judas refused the love offered him, and he did his own thing. Both Cain and Judas were under God's love, and both rejected that love over selfish wants. Peter, in writing that God is not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance, is not saying that all men will be saved. God created mankind to serve and obey him. He offered them an opportunity to do that in the Garden of Eden, but man rejected it. He rebelled. God still loved his creation. He wanted men to serve him. He issued a call to all men to return to him and be obedient. But man could not hear because of his dead spiritual condition. God in his mercy continued to call all men, and he went even beyond mercy with grace. He worked in the hearts of some men, So they were made alive and could hear his call and answer it. All of these men God has called by grace will hear and will come. Those men who continue to refuse to come, like the false teachers and scoffers Peter has spoken about, as well as Cain and Judas, will be cast out of God's presence into the eternal death of the lake of fire. God created all men to be his. He gave them the opportunity in Adam to follow him, and they rebelled. He calls all men to come, even now. But only those he chooses through the changing of their hearts will come. All others will be left to follow the path of their own choosing and to the destruction in which that path leads. This is Peter's reminder that the works and time of salvation are in God's hands, not in the hands of men. Please, I beg of you, examine your hearts. Do you trust in Jesus Christ and in the works of the triumph of God alone for your salvation? There's no other way. It's through Christ and through Christ alone that salvation comes. It's not you and your works. It's not you and, and the preacher you have or the church you sit in. 
It's you and Jesus Christ. You must have your faith and trust in Him and in Him alone. I tell you, you must trust if you want to join with Him on the day of the Lord. In this next verse, Peter gives to all who will hear his words a warning about this coming day. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. He first makes sure you understand. The day of the Lord is coming. It does not matter that it has been nearly 20 centuries since the day of the Lord was written. It was declared by God and in his time it will appear. Acts 17.31 says, He is appointed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. It is also declared in Hebrews 9.27, And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. God has set the time, and that time is approaching. It's not for us to try and discern the date of his exact arrival, but to be prepared at all times for its certain coming. Please don't get all tied up trying to find the date his coming of his coming. Instead, be preparing yourself for his coming. If you're a responsibility as a believer in Jesus Christ to understand that day that day is coming, and when it comes you will be called upon to give an account of all the things done in the body, whether good or bad. You must, therefore, place all of your hope and trust in Jesus Christ and what he has done. For it is only through his works you can be accepted by God. You must be constantly examining your heart in the light of God's word, for it is only those who believe this day of judgment is coming. Only those who submit themselves repeatedly to the guidance of the word and spirit that will show themselves to be in Christ on that day. For them, it will be Christ who speaks on their behalf. It will be Christ who gives the account of their lives to the Father. This one believed in me. Those are the words we want to hear. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And no other account is going to bring you eternal life but the account of Jesus Christ. Peter says this constant work of preparation is very necessary because the day of the Lord will come like a thief. There will be no time to prepare once he decides to come. He will enter as a thief enters at night without any advance notice of his coming. In Matthew 25, Christ tells the parable of the ten virgins. Five were wise and prepared. Five were foolish and unprepared. When the bridegroom finally came, they were all asleep, wise and foolish. The warning is clear. Luke expresses it in Luke 12:46. The master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour when he is not aware. The lightning flashes from east to west. That'll be his announcement of his coming. It happens in an instant. The time will be one when men will think it's most unlikely for him to return. It will be a time when they feel the most secure. 
This will tells you that you must be very careful about how you think about this day and what you imagine it will be like. You must, as a true believer in Jesus Christ, never think this day's far away. It should always be in your heart and mind that it should be immediately. He could come right now. It is the scoffers that will say, nay, he delays and will not come soon. Peter continues, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. This world has been devastated by sin. It's unfit for the glory of God. And when Christ comes in all of his glory, it shall roll up and disappear because of his glory. There will be a loud roar as the heavens disappear from sight. Then the elements will melt with fervent heat. It will be like a terrible and violent storm as the sky clouds up and passes away. Then the very elements of this earth will be consumed by fire. He also says both earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Nothing of this sinful world shall remain. The glory of Christ, the glory of the triune God shall bring it to an end. All the great mountains, the seas, the deserts, and the works of the hands of men will be done away with, along with those men who have not believed. They shall all pass through the fire, and everything not dedicated to the true glory of Jesus Christ will be destroyed. Remember, Our God is a consuming fire. This fire will melt all that is not glorifying to God and will take and make all from all that does glorify him a brighter, a greater monument to God's glory and faithfulness than this old world could ever be. Do you not see the difference between the first and the second coming of our Lord? In Malachi 4, 5, the first coming is called the great and dreadful day of the Lord. If, if Christ's first coming is dreadful, how much more dreadful will be his second coming for those who are in rebellion against him? I pray and hope that you will be wise and will prepare your hearts and minds that this day of the Lord will not be a dread to you, but a great joy. That you will set your affections not on this world and its disappearing pleasures, but on Christ and the solid promises of his grace. Take to heart the things that will stand the test of fire and will last. Those things are faith and trust in Jesus Christ and in him alone. There's an end coming to the pain and suffering of this world. Sin caused that pain and suffering, and sin has been dealt with through Jesus Christ and his death on Calvary's cross. Peter now gives to you a revelation from God about the very end of this world. It is a revelation, a revelation that should build as much joy in your heart as the message of hope and grace Christ brought in his first visit with his wonderful offer of salvation. This message is the end of the world, is is one that should inspire every believer in Jesus Christ to a life of holiness as an expression, as a personal sacrifice of their love for him.
Peter says this day of the Lord is not far away. It should be at the forefront of your thoughts and your actions should be geared to help speed its coming. Verses 11 through 13. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for our new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This day is coming. It's coming to bring about the destruction of everything. So Peter asks, what manner of persons ought you to be? God is coming to destroy everything that has been tainted by sin. Nothing that is marked by sin will remain. You will not survive if you're marked by sin. This is why the gospel promises. It promises to make you into a new creation. So the mark of sin will be removed from you. Your hearts are changed from stone to flesh. Your spirits are changed from death to life. Your bodies will be changed from sin-laden flesh to new glorified flesh in which sin cannot put its mark. Therefore, you, as believers in Jesus Christ, must live in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hasting the day coming of the day of God. This has been Peter's message from the beginning. You are to live holy and pleasing lives before God. You have an obligation as a Christian. It's not to earn or purchase from God, but to show your love and appreciation to him. Peter says, you ought. You have a responsibility. A responsibility to live as one who loves Christ. Why? Because of his love shown to you while you were still a sinner, while you were undeserving of his grace. What is it you ought to do? Be obedient, be holy, be faithful, be loving, be expectant, be ever looking forward to what God promised in Jesus Christ. Peter says, be expectant of the day of God. Don't do some and try to make the day of God be different from the day of the Lord. They're one and the same thing. This is the day we as believers are looking forward to. He even suggests that we can speed its coming. How? By living holy and godly lives and carrying out the commission he has given us as members of his church. Carrying the gospel to others, for it is only when everyone God has chosen hears the good news and comes to faith in Jesus Christ that this day will come. He reminds you that this day will be devastating. It will destroy all we know as the world. But read verse 13. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Here's the result. Here's the result that will come to all through who through grace believe in Jesus Christ and by faith hold to his gift of salvation. He has promised. He has promised that he will replace the old earth with a new one. 
The revelation of our God begins in Genesis 1-1 with the words, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. At the end of his revelation, we hear in Revelation 21-1 these words of comfort. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The first heaven, the first earth, were contaminated by sins of men. God, when he comes the second time as the Savior of the world, will destroy that old sin-scarred world and will replace it with, as Peter says, the home of righteousness. Heaven and earth become one. He comes and recreates not just our hearts, spirits, and bodies, but he creates the very place we will live. To all who have heard his message of grace and hope brought through Jesus' first trip to earth, he will give everything new. He will also give a perfect home where sin can never again attack and harm anyone. I don't know about you, but that's the greatest promise that he could ever give me. I'm going to be removed from this sin-filled body and given a new body that can never know sin again. In conclusion, I trust you understand that a proper knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ is absolutely necessary for the believer. Along with that knowledge comes an understanding of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Please, be careful here. A proper knowledge of the second coming of Christ is not acceptance of one of the eschatological systems so many try to push. Premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism, dispensationalism. The truth of the coming of Christ we are all called to hold to is that he is coming and there will be a bodily resurrection and the old heavens and earth will pass away. Then a new heaven and earth will be created. There will be a judgment and those who have believed in Jesus Christ will go to be with him in heaven and those who did not believe will be sent to the lake of fire with Satan and his demons. In the three main views, historic, pre-mill, all-mill, or post-mill, there is found some truth in each one. But they are trying to see things yet to come. That makes it impossible that our finite minds can completely see what is yet to come beyond what God has revealed. The PCA allows you to be historic, pre-mill, all-mill, or post-mill. It does not make eschatological things a matter of orthodoxy. And I pray and hope that you will not either. The scriptures are clear on the things you need in this life. They declare without question your sinful estate and the darkness in which you lived without Jesus Christ. They also make very clear that anyone who will see their sin and their need of a Savior and will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the only possible Savior can be saved. If you as a non-believer will call out to Jesus Christ with a broken and contrite heart, confessing your sin and asking his mercy, he will give you both his grace and mercy and save your soul from death. He will also work in you through his Holy Spirit to live a holy and godly life and allow you to work toward the coming of the day of the Lord. So please, open your hearts and be filled with his grace and mercy. Understand, There is only one way to come into heaven, and that is through Jesus Christ. He says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Be prepared to meet him 
on the day of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, you have called us to be your people, to serve you and to minister to others in your name. You have told us in your word we are to be holy before you because you, our Lord, are holy. You have declared that you set us apart from all others to be your own. Help us, Father, to grow in our ability to be witnesses of your grace to the world around us. Give us the strength and courage to stand fast in your word and mold us every day more and more into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.